Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Anderson. In this episode, we focus on a key community affected by hepatitis B viral infections, African immigrant people. I'm joined today by Dr. Issa Mohammed, clinical researcher in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Dr. Pani Purumalswamy, Associate Professor of Internal Medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the University of Michigan, and patient navigator Dauda Najai. They will discuss their strategies to overcome barriers to HPV care in African immigrant people. To follow along with the accompanying slide set, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now, let's get started and hear what Dr. Mohammed, Dr. Purumal Swami, and Mr. Dauda have to say about HPV care for African immigrant people. Thank you all for joining us today. We're really excited to talk about, I think, an under discussed and somewhat understudied group living in the United States at risk for hepatitis B. So let's just start with a little bit of background or epidemiology. We know that the number of Black people living in the United States who are immigrants or foreign-born living here in the United States has grown over the last 30 to 40 years. And it's actually projected that we will continue to see increases in the number of foreign-born Africans living in the United States. And why this matters in terms of our public health problems around hepatitis B in the United States is that African immigrants have really shoulder a disproportionate burden of hepatitis B infection and as well as liver cancer. So we know that hepatocellular carcinoma or liver cancer is a major cause of premature death in people living in Africa. And that hepatitis B virus infection is the dominant risk factor for liver cancer in people living in Africa. And to put that into perspective, we know that 27% of all individuals with hepatitis B infection globally live or reside in African nations. And in 2017, we approximated that 4.3 million members of the Sub-Saharan African diaspora were residing here in the United States. And we know that hepatitis B in general is largely undiagnosed. The most recent estimates that have come out in 2023 still suggest that at least 50% or more people living with hepatitis B infection have not yet been diagnosed. Cities such as New York City several years ago have looked at the percentage of their populations, particularly those who are foreign-born from Africa and Asian Pacific Island countries who are living with undiagnosed hep B by the region of birth and African-born persons still make up a significant proportion of our communities who are living with hep B who have not yet been diagnosed with estimates as high as over 45% still not yet diagnosed the Asian and Pacific Islander born communities that have undiagnosed percentages about 35%. Now, hepatitis B awareness in first-generation African immigrants We have some data to suggest that there's some awareness, but there's still a major gap here. And this gap, I think, is a critical first step in terms of how we get the word out around hepatitis B to then try to understand what strategies we can implement to try to increase hepatitis B testing in our communities that are disproportionately affected. So the first study here was a cross-sectional survey of 70 plus 
first generational African Americans living in New York City as of 2016. 30% of the respondents had reported, as you'll see here, not being tested for Hep B because of either a lack of health insurance or because their health care provider did not recommend it to them. And that 23% of respondents thought one could contract or acquire hepatitis B infection from either sharing food with or eating prepared food by a Hep B infected individual or carrier. And 9% thought it could be acquired from a handshake. And we know that these are not accurate modes or either at all modes of transmission of this virus. And so it speaks to really major gaps in community awareness and understanding of how hepatitis B can be acquired and also gives us some insights into what are the determinants that are not enabling our communities to get testing, including the lack of insurance as well as provider-related barriers in terms of what is being recommended to them when they engage in care. The majority of respondents actually responded that they had heard of a hepatitis B vaccine. And you can also see here that only 50% had ever had vaccination or prevention strategies with a vaccine previously. And we know that hepatitis B awareness, certainly in hep B surface antigen of West African immigrant women, who are of childbearing age and pregnant is also in a very important group in terms of knowing how hepatitis B is trans transmitted globally. More than half of hep B infection is, is believed to be transmitted from mother to child or in early childhood. And so this was a, an additional study published in 2015, looking retrospectively at the charts of 114 hepatitis B infected women who gave birth between 2004 and 2008 in a community-based hospital located in the Bronx, New York, which also has a higher proportion of African immigrants residing in that area. 88% of this cohort of 114 women were women from West Africa. And of this group, 39 of them were interviewed and only 54% had ever heard of hepatitis B infection and 52% knew hepatitis B could be. Other areas that were queried in the responses with these qualitative studies included trying to get a better understanding of how hepatitis B could it be transmitted during childbirth. And the majority of respondents responded that they understood it could be transmitted during childbirth. The majority of these women who engaged in the qualitative studies understood that it was not transmitted by eating food prepared by an infected person and could not be transmitted by coughing or holding hands or other incorrect modes, really, of transmission. And when you think about the cascade of care for hepatitis B and all of the steps that it takes to even get somebody to do the first important step of testing, really thinking about where we can address these gaps or determinants in hepatitis B care are really important because we know hepatitis B is a major cause for liver cancer and that hepatitis B is a silent infection for most of these individuals. So these are a couple of studies that, again, highlight these gaps in hepatitis B care and the link to liver cancer. The study on the left, it was a retrospective descriptive study of African-born adult 
patients diagnosed with hepatitis B and liver cancer residing in Minnesota. 80% of these individuals had been treated with antivirals prior to their liver cancer diagnosis. So these were patients who had been diagnosed and been treated the majority. And the determinants and factors that really influenced their ability to stay engaged in care included barriers such as medication adherence being challenging in those patients who were treated and hep B infection awareness being lost to follow up were also challenges in the untreated. And so I think one of the findings from the study is that early viral hepatitis testing and access to antiviral treatment are key to reducing liver cancer risk, but there are still significant determinants that might influence a patient's or person's ability to get engaged in care and stay engaged in that care as it relates to antiviral therapy. And the additional study that was also done was a prospective community-based hepatitis B testing program for the Somali population or community living in Minnesota. So this is a very large sample of close to 780 Somali people residing in Minnesota. And they found a very high amount of the community that tested positive for hepatitis B infection, over 15%. And 50% plus had prior exposure to hepatitis B based on the prevalence of core antibody presence in these patients. So very high exposure, very high infection rates. I think, again, highlighting the important need to do testing in these communities that shoulder a disproportionate burden of hepatitis B infection. And liver cancer incidence is likely higher in this community that was tested as many participants were lost to follow up. So really getting awareness raised in these communities is important. Getting that important first step of getting them tested is also important to know their status. And then very equally important is keeping patients who are infected, engaged in strategies for follow-up care, including liver cancer screening. So community-based screening is an essential way for us to identify communities who are at risk and living with hepatitis B and a mode for which we can work and need more efforts to do work to engage these populations in long-term care. So some strategies we can think about that would enable us to increase hepatitis B awareness include public health awareness campaigns, similar to what has been done for other foreign-born communities, right? To really raise people's awareness about why people would be at risk for hepatitis B infection, that this is largely a silent infection and how you can acquire this infection. And it's also an opportunity for us to, in this awareness campaign, promote testing as well as prevention vaccination strategies. We have highly effective Hep B vaccines, and it's very important to get the word out, especially in light of updated guidances that are really hot off the press in 2023 around offering vaccines and now testing for all adults and including healthcare professionals as trusted sources of information and making sure that awareness is also raised among providers who are on the front line with these communities to be making sure they're aware of who's recommended for testing, trying to think about how we simplify some of these strategies around testing to get more people tested and engaged in care as needed. And implementation of processes to notify healthcare providers of who are these high-risk patients Although my hope is with the updated guidances that have just come out by CDC and others a month ago, these strategies can get simplified so that more testing is done for people at large. 
And then culturally and linguistically appropriate educational efforts to increase knowledge of Hep B are really important. There's been definitely some movement to improve this for a variety of different communities, including now African-born communities, but more work needs to be done given the variety of languages and culturally appropriate information that can really engage our communities to understand what is hepatitis B infection and how is it transmitted. And then finally, there's data to suggest that community health worker-led outreach models is another potential way in which we can think about leveraging and getting information out into the communities through trusted members of their communities. And then work also to do not just hepatitis B testing, but then work on the important part of getting people who test positive engaged and remain in care. Another community health worker-led hepatitis B screening program that we had the privilege to be a part of in New York City several years ago, and it's an ongoing effort still, really focused its efforts on African immigrant communities that involved our, our patient navigator who's with us today. And we know that because of the increase in the number of African immigrants living in the United States, this remains an important area for us to be doing and supporting more resources for the community. Some of the sub-Saharan African nations have some of the highest rates of Hep B in the world. And community health worker-led models of viral hepatitis screening and outreach for not just hepatitis testing, but also liver cancer engagement are important modes for us to leverage into communities to build trust and build capacity. So in this community health worker-led outreach model, we were able to identify 97% of the people who were identified with hep B infection were actually linked to the care, and 90% attended follow-up visits. And so I think, again, these models that you're seeing across the country are giving us good strategies to think about how we leverage and develop and really need to support more broadly in our communities. So now let's take a moment to ask our roundtable panelists here their thoughts about what they're seeing with hepatitis B epidemiologically in the United States and really would like to have a discussion about what are the strategies and importance around hep B awareness that they're seeing in terms of African immigrant communities living in the United States. So we'll start with Dauda, our patient advocate. I just would like to say FBV outreach program significantly must increase knowledge because my population have lack of knowledge. I say culturally appropriate education because these people, they are illiterated. They have cultural factors like uh, this is goodwill, so do, I don't need to do anything. These people, they must trust you. Trust you because they think about their community. This is a stigma. Trust you because they don't want anybody from this community to know about it. How's they going to know? But if I call somebody or let him know that he has been diagnosed with hepatitis B, Sometimes in the room, this guy cry and do some, I mean, you even don't recognize it. He's going to die soon. But you have to just talk to him slowly, clearly. 
and his native language most most of the time because as I'm speaking six different languages in, in English, it's seven, and I talk to them in their native language or let them know if you follow your doctor recommendation, if you follow whatever doctors tell you, you can live more, they say, Arnold, because they say my liver, take your medication. You, you have to go, if you need vaccination, to do your vaccination. That's the way you can escape from hepatitis. Otherwise, the liver, well, your liver is going to be damaged. You have to take your medication. You have to follow your doctor recommendation. Like that, usually they say, okay, so if I do that, I'm not going to die. If a person dying or not dying is good power. But anyway, wherever you go, if you do this, people are living with HPV more than the time you think. People are here, but it is asymptomatic. There is no symptom. There is no, but if you take your medication, if you do this, if you do this, usually you can be fine. That's only this way I have trusted these people and all this career, I have four people who die, and I can't tell you how many people every week for this first question. Every week, I have four or five patients. Every week, I used to have five to ten people. So, and all my career as a patient navigator, I have four patients who die from the United States and they just send them back home. Most of them are here, still here, showing them, participating in the get-together, African get-together, Senegalese, the Malian people. So I guess this building, this lack of knowledge, this lack of regular or thinking that's good will, you have to come to the religion and talk to them. This way, in my own office, I used to let them know that trusting in God, trusting in Muhammad, if you are Muslim, you have to take care of yourself first. You have to take care of your health. So only you can live longer. That's only this way. Myself, if I talk to them, their African language, they become more receptive. They say, oh, okay, anyway, myself, you don't do something that harmful to me. I say, no, I don't need to. You don't pay me. Somebody else pay me, and I want you exactly to, to, to be fine. I want you to be fine because this is transmitted. You can transmit this way to your wife. She's back home. You can transmit this to your son, your children, wherever. And the only way they start now getting more trust and they start accept to sign the constant because they must sign the content before you take them to Dr. Pony or to take them to the hospital. But before they say, ah, no, no, I don't trust. 
I don't trust people because I say they don't need even if they need clear blood because you have been tested positive. So you say definitely. I don't think they they might need. I say need it for what? In this country, everybody got the same. In this country, everybody just is. They say, oh, should I be deported because of? I say no. You gonna you gonna be deported. But you're going to be discreet. You're going to be vaccinated if you need vaccine. If you need your doctor, let me know. If you need this, let me know. Whatever, whatever. And uh, that's the only way I come over this thought, African people talk. Because I help some patients from West Africa. I got people from Gap and Congo. And some people from Kenya, Mozambique, wherever. Look, so I, I had different population who got different cultural factors. But thanks to God, I used to, when I told them, now it's time for me to retire, they say, no, you're going to make whoever sign and tell Africans not to let you go. I say, I'm 72 years, they say, we don't care. We just use powder. How come you go? We went on vacation last year. They, nobody came to African service. Even if they call them, you have your appointment. They say, no, I'm waiting for powder. They say, why you wait for powder? You see, he made me feel comfortable. Some, someone in his hospital bed to Mount Sinai, was dying, he said, no, call Dauda, because he made me feel good and optimistic. I went to his bed and talked to him. Finally, he, he died. So these key communities, that's very different. The first thing is to make them rescue. If you don't do that, they're going to die, but just... Even if they die, they prefer dying than open up to somebody else. So I think this one is a key problem of this misconception due to the cultural factor of these communities. So moving from having a really great understanding of the gap around happy awareness, it's also important to understand what are other key determinants, right, for our African-born communities living in the United States and how they view hepatitis B. And stigma certainly is one of those important determinants. And stigma has really come out as a determinant from a number of both survey cross-sectional studies as well as qualitative work and talking to people from these communities. And why that's important is not just that it's present, but that it can be a significant barrier uh, to hepatitis B testing and treatment. And you just heard a little bit about why it's important to raise awareness and what things really communities identify with in terms of needing very accurate information, but it's also important in our information to try to address stigma because this can really be an important thing that either facilitates or really limits patients from seeking hepatitis B testing and then treatment. 
Um, and based on some qualitative work that has been recently published in 2020, in talking to African immigrant communities in the United States, we've heard community members such as the one here say, quote, people may not want to get tested because they believe that everything is God's will, as well as thinking that it's better to not know, end quote. And another kind of snapshot into this barrier was an, another participant who was interviewed who said, quote, if you believe in God, then you should allow him to heal you first. When all else fails, that is when you go to the doctor, end quote. And so I think you're hearing in these quotes that hepatitis B, certainly the stigma can really be a barrier here. And that how religion works into some of these communities in terms of understanding these determinants is very important to acknowledge and understand. You just heard also in the panel discussion how communities can connect with community health workers when they're able to talk about this all intertwined, really cultural beliefs and important kind of factors. And then additional cultural influences that patients have mentioned include the following quote, quote, if you contract hepatitis B, it may not uh, necessarily be accurate to you being exposed to infected blood, but because of some spiritual misdeeds that you have become infected or maybe it is attributable to something your family has done. So again, thinking about how patients are consuming this information around if they have hepatitis B or knowing their status, how that might interact or influence social interactions, misconceptions, or stigma that's associated with how they could have acquired this disease and feeling shamed. And so these things are important to understand because they can really influence who goes and gets tested and who doesn't. And then also the same for treatment, I would say as well. Now, storytelling is a very, very powerful strategy for us to think about leveraging in terms of how we overcome HEPI-related stigma in all of our communities, but certainly also significant in African immigrant communities here in the United States. The Hepatitis B Foundation is a wonderful global organization that has really done an amazing job of trying to engage and invite people with lived experiences with hepatitis B and or liver cancer to tell their stories, to share these stories. And, it, and by sharing these stories, the hope is that we increase not just awareness, but we also work to reduce stigma by people sharing their experiences. And it's also important to understand that stigma can vary in these communities between men and women, and they can be dif different across different nations that we're seeing as well. And so like one such resource here include stories that have been told by African immigrants as part of the Happy Foundation storytelling project. Again, a very powerful project and it's available in multiple different languages. And then in terms of our strategies to really try to understand how all of the factors or determinants really influencing can influence a person to seek a very, what we would consider simple step of hepatitis B testing or screening. It's important to understand to get to screening. There's a lot of steps that we need to understand within communities, including attitudes towards hep B screening, knowledge and beliefs and perceptions, including stigma, and then perceptions around their ease or difficulty in accessing hepatitis B screening. And so these theory-informed approaches, like the theory of planned behavior, for example, here, is one such way in which we can try to have a deeper understanding or approach to try to 
really enact change, that behavior change that would increase Hep B testing, a very distal event that really is influenced by all of these upstream factors that we need to have a better understanding of. We'll open it up here and would love to hear from our panelists now about their experiences around the determinant of stigma around Hep B infection in African-born communities. Maybe I'll start with Dr. Muhammad, and then we can move to Dauda. Thank you. Our experiences in regards to what Mr. Dauda had mentioned earlier, I'd like to echo some things, is that, yes, trust is a major important factor that needs to be held at the forefront when decisions are being made. The traditional way of relaying information to the patient populations that the vast majority of our care practitioners provide may not necessarily work in every community, and in particular, in individuals who have immigrated from Africa or recent immigrants from Africa. Being able to culturally be responsive and have discussions in a manner that is receptive to the community should be as, as important, if not the most important factor, as much as delivering the message of whether they should be screened for hepatitis be treated for hepatitis B or et cetera. In regards to knowledge with the will of God and other social stigmas that are associated, these phrases that may not necessarily be as common in Western culture, even through our personal experiences of providing free hepatitis screening in the community, we've had various members outright, I would say, become aggressive towards us just by showing up into the community and even talking about screening for hepatitis simply because their thoughts are that we will expose them And that once the community understands that they are infected, there is the potential loss of cultural standing or communal standing. Uh, People would lose prospects of even marriage if they were found out to have some sort of infectious disease, simply because the interpretation would be that they've been doing some promiscuous type of acts that has caused that to occur or there have been some transgressions that members of their family have committed against others and that this is spiritual, religious, or deity's response to some of those mistakes have occurred. So it's not just delivering a message that you do have hepatitis or, hey, you should get treated for hepatitis, but also taking into consideration what would be the fallback or the consequences of the messaging. I hope I answered the question, Dr. Pani. That was very helpful and comprehensive. Mr. Dowda, do you have any comment or two? This all this stigma make them uh, not too excited to go to, to the to their doctor or to go to the hospital because they think that people are just sending it to them. But always uh, the way I came over this from most of my patients, the student, that's your conception. Because if you see someone or you are treated by a doctor, the top doctor, all this doctor, so far that I know, treat patients with respect. Most of them, most of them, they treat people no matter, that's what my patient in five different hospitals or six in New York City. Five different or six different hospitals. But the doctor, most of them, they have the same, the same way they 
receive patients the same way they advise people and they test people. Go, just do your part. Your part is to see your doctor because you have hepatitis B. The attack your liver and this liver, nobody knows. If it is not fibrosis, if it is not cirrhosis, if it is not cancer. How are you gonna? Because if you don't go, gonna go from fibrosis to cirrhosis and cancer. So don't wait to be cancerogen to go to the hospital, because you're gonna just you're gonna be you're gonna show your symptom to anybody, not a doctor, not an hospital, but whoever pass by the street gonna know that you are sick. What are some of the uh, contributing factors that inhibit? effective communication between the clinician and individuals of African descent or immigrant descent in the United States. Language barriers. Africa comprises approximately one-third of the world's languages. Sometimes, contrary to popular belief, when we look at Africa as a monolith, this is the second largest continent in the world, and almost a fifth of the world's population lives in this continent. Anywhere between 1,000 to 2,000 unique languages exist across the entire continent, which makes genuine sense as a scientist. This is the most genetically diverse continent on the planet, which makes sense. And about at least 75 languages are spoken by 1 million, if not more, individuals. So this is a large subset of the global population that we have through various discussions in media and social media, et cetera, that we've trivialized into a small little place. Most African languages are primarily orally driven, which means that it's very little a written language unless the last hundred years or so languages have been started to be written after the colonialization of the continent. And also the, even the term hepatitis B or hepatitis or cirrhosis or any of these medical terms that we have from experiences that we've had through various African populations, if they do have a symptom or at least if they, have, they do have a term for the symptom, it's mostly the symptom rather than the actual infection itself. Now, what are some of the strategies that we can overcome some of these language barriers? Again, this is multifocal. It has to be very much unique to this patient subset of the population that you're looking into. But there has to be availability of healthcare providers from the patient's country of origin and or who speaks the same language as the patient. And one thing that we would like to make sure that we overemphasize is that just because a country a person comes from a specific country doesn't mean that all individuals who come from that country actually speak the same language. I personally had experiences in the past where we've had people who came into the hepatitis liver clinic who might come from Ethiopia, for example. But Ethiopia has over 80 languages in the country, and it was very difficult to navigate the process of what language this person spoke, uh, especially at the time when the patient's right in front of you. Uh, Provide education that is culturally and linguistically appropriate. Many of the works that has been done is to showcase some of this information through video educational seminars, especially having people speak the language that the individual is coming from. Again, we've had even patient populations who currently still don't have written languages in Minnesota that we were able to engage with, but a lot of the work that we were doing had to be orally delivered and not necessarily in a written context. And then provide culturally and linguistically appropriate translational services for patient visits. Again, it's important to know your patient, 
Assuming that the patient comes from country X doesn't mean that they speak the national language or the language that is predominantly spoken in that country. So there should be somewhere in the system that can vet this information prior to their arrival. Now I'll open up to Mr. Dawuda as well as Dr. Perumalsami. What were some of the experiences that you've had in regards to making sure that effective communication is being done or had in the clinic or in the community? The barrier, the language barrier is, a, for me, usually the, the communication between people who are not unable to talk a common language. Some examples of language barrier that I used to have with my patient, people speaking language native different from, they come from different regions. Even if I speak six different languages, sometimes I have some patient coming from Congo. No, they speak dialect that I really don't know. But I have someone in the, in the agency who speaks this. The dialect are another example of language barrier, if that's the case. And still face no understanding and a gap in uh, connection due to the dialectical difference. So that I noticed uh, seven seven language barriers that I have uh, noticed during my professional career of patient navigator. This have been physical, cultural interpersonal, gender, anger, pride, and, con and conclusion. So these people, they came from different countries. I used to have a patient coming from Angola. This guy, he been speaking Portuguese, but Usually, he came and said, okay, we know, no one from us was speaking his language. He get mad, he want to go out. I call him, I go to the room, I close, and I say, what is your problem? He say, my problem is I'm sick. They call me from my country that I have hepatitis. And I came in this agency. No one doesn't want to care of me. I say, no. What? No. Don't say that. Don't say no one doesn't want to care of you because of your language. Do you speak another language? Say, yes, I speak a little bit French. I say, okay. Look, I'll speak French. Say, oh, you speak French? I say, fluently. Say, okay. Sorry, okay, he just put his personal belonging and say, okay. Now, I run out, get some documents for the, just to enroll the guy and get, just take the, I take him, I take, the, I restrain him and make him, I call, when I call, 
but we speak a little, a little English, a little French, but not fluently. But from this struggle, I struggle. I just restrain him. I just take all the personal information that I need for him, make him get tested, and the test become positive. And I used to have him, and because he didn't have papers, I went. He went to Mount Sinai once. After that, I used to tell him to take him to hospital. But he still, some of them. For this language barrier, I have two patients. I lost two patients who just go back to their to Senegal because they fear that they might die here, and maybe that was not that was not uh, nobody fought, but they say I don't want to die out of my country, and by the end I can't express myself, what I feel, even if I speak Wolof, the language you speak, but say, not you only, Dauda. You speak my language, but I have to talk to close friends, and I can. So I try to convince him to stay, get health care, get linkage to care and stay, even if he doesn't have papers, undocumented he is. But finally, they have they've been two people that go back to Senegal. They, I heard that, I guess they died from there. That was very painful for me, but I couldn't do more than that, just calling him to stay. Because overseas, you're not going to get treatment. You're not going to get affordable medication, something like that. So in terms of language barrier, I think that this, try to overcome this, I guess that is a serious matter to overcome this language barrier. This is population, African population. We have to do more education. We have to Speak clearly. We have to pass by their accent. It's not a problem. You, they, if they understand what you say, it's okay. But I guess is it is very important from this yeah. program to see how we overcome all this language barrier because these people. I really have really problem with the cultural factor. Definitely. Thank you, Mr. Dauda. That's great insights in terms of coming from the health navigator perspective. Dr. Puru Malaswamy, what are your thoughts in terms of the role that a clinician plays in ensuring when you have a third person or third party interpreting between you and your patient? Yeah, so I think there's one, it's important for providers just to understand how linguistically diverse, right, these communities are. And as you said at the beginning, to not assume, right, we make a lot of assumptions. And we also work within kind of limitations of our health systems or health practices. But I think as providers, we need to be advocating on behalf of the communities that we're caring for. 
So that might mean that we are saying standard language translation kind of services may not meet the needs fully of our program or that we need to make sure we're working with services that can support our patients in additional ways. And I do think, I think there have been some other studies that have looked at obviously phone translation versus in-person translation and how that allows for in-person translation allows for more of a conversation style. Do things get lost in translation when you're not using like an outside third-party phone language line translator where they're translating everything word for word? I think it also gets into some of the medical words that we use with patients and even the style in which we talk to patients don't always have direct great ways to translate them in language that are culturally appropriate and acceptable. So I think it's quite complex. And I do think this is an area where providers need to start from a place of who are the communities we are caring for, having an understanding that there's a lot more diversity, including, as you mentioned, not all of these languages having written forms of communication. So really thinking about how we can be creative in leveraging caregiver support, family support, community support, and also advocating for more resources in this area where we can, I think one of the, Mr. Dauda is a multilingual community health worker, patient navigator. Um, And so investing in more of people who can leverage various languages in different ways can be helpful. I'm not sure we have all the answers, but I think these are things we, we should be thinking about. That's fantastic. And one more idea that I would like to chime in is that translation shouldn't be looked at just translating a message to the patient, but rather making sure that meaningful information is relayed to the patient in a way that is responsive to their needs. Some of the ideas that we've discussed in the past have been educating the actual cultural brokers themselves and maybe perhaps getting some more hands-on experience of what the disease is How does it transmit from one person to another? And then, but more importantly, strategies on how they should be able to relay that information, whether if it's using folklore, using music, using other types of media to engage in the patient population that they're serving. But fantastic. Thank you again to you both. Now we'll segue into health insurance barriers in the African American population in the United States. Several papers have discussed this topic in detail But the general understanding here is that African immigrant people may not have health insurance owing to their legal status in the United States. As Mr. Dawood had mentioned, many of these individuals seek or have fear of being deported if they seek medical attention. One of the papers here had discussed the Kenyan population in the state of Minnesota and how a vast majority of the Kenyan community, even though they're educated and are aware of the disease themselves, However, many of these individuals decided not to seek medical care of the fear of fact that since their visas have canceled, they might be deported. Also, differences in how health insurance works in countries outside of the United States may cause confusion with use of U.S.-based health insurance. Many of these factors, again, in healthcare systems across the entire world is quite different. And the one that we currently have in the United States, as it is quite complicated for the general population, but affordability is a problem. I'm not all jobs that many of these individuals have can provide health insurance or provide good health insurance coverage. And people with health insurance find it difficult to use. 
again, what the lingos of reading through what the actual eligibility services that they may have and locating covered healthcare professionals or clinics or hospital sitting systems might be other variables that we need to make sure that we take into consideration when we're making sure that we mitigate some of these concerns. Access to health insurance improves hepatitis B vaccination and screening rates in African immigrant population. Again, various studies have shown that many of these individuals either A, have not been vaccinated for hepatitis B, or B, were unaware of the hepatitis B positivity. In a recent cross-sectional study that was done, surveyed about 71 individuals, first-generation African Americans living in New York City in 2016, whereby nearly two-thirds of whom reported have health insurance. Again, having health insurance strongly was associated with hepatitis B screening and vaccination. About 67% of people with health insurance had been screened for hepatitis B compared to 33% with people without health insurance. In addition, 67% of people with health insurance had been vaccinated against hepatitis B compared to 17% of people without health insurance. So again, you can see that how accessibility and being able to get coverage can improve some of these metrics of preventing these diseases from continuing to propagate and spread. Now, what are strategies to help African immigrant people navigate the health insurance in general? Again, having people like Mr. Dauda be present at the table, providing community resources to assist people with applying for health insurance or accessing public health assistance program. Again, from state to state, policies will be different, but making sure that we can mitigate some of these by or some of these issues by utilizing care coordinators or community health workers is viable. Assist patients in accessing medications approved by insurance and using generic medication when possible to mitigate some costs as well. Now, again, to the panelists, what are your thoughts initially in terms of insurance being a hindrance to access and how have you at least mitigated some of these issues? And maybe this should go to Dr. Peru Maswami to answer. Yeah, so I think as you just highlighted, Dr. Mohammed, insurance is an important determinant of being able to not just seek testing, but engaging in long-term care, which is needed for people living with hepatitis B. And hepatitis insurance obviously can enable one to access vaccinations, as you just mentioned, treatment, as well as other long-term kind of surveillance measures, including routine blood tests, as well as liver cancer screening, right? Which is commonly done with an, at least an ultrasound every six months. So these things cost money. Patients and communities should not have to foot the bill out of pocket for these expenses. I know certainly in our work through Hepatitis Outreach Network in New York City, over the 10 years since expansion, we've seen more patients with insurance in our community outreach programs in the West African community, but there still is a major gap and there's still a lot of people who reside in states in which Medicaid expansion did not happen and or they're not Medicaid eligible because of documentation status. So I do know that states, some states have invested programs around, for example, hepatitis C and additional supportive services to leverage testing and treatment, even for undocumented individuals. And those things might serve as models, right, for other states that say, hey, we have communities that have this need and we need to try to address subsidized costs, support costs in this area. 
And where when we were at Mount Sinai, we would always have our Mr. Dauda work with our social work team or the financial services office to see if sliding scale subsidized services could be provided to patients. And occasionally we even leveraged charitable organizations to help cover the cost. But a lot of this stuff takes a lot of different various coordination, which then creates additional barriers to how do you actually effectively accomplish this. I think this is something that still needs a lot of attention. Pathways for undocumented people to have health insurance remains an important need because of our U.S. medical health system and how it operates in terms of coverage and costs. And so I think this is an area that we don't have all of the solutions. We have things and ways we can try to overcome these barriers with, again, accessing social services, other supportive charitable services, your financial services in your health systems, us as providers advocating for more services and support within these health systems is a key piece of that to get better coverage and to get people engaged. The health insurance and healthcare services from immigration of New York City that I know well. There are many ways for residents of New York to get affordable care. Healthcare in our city, regardless of immigration status. People, people, my patient usually ask this question. Does health insurance affect my immigration status? Does marketplace insurance affect my immigration statute? Can a no citizen get Medicare? But I have dealt with four, this four type of immigration statute. I have patients who are citizen. I have patients who are resident. I have patients who are non-immigrant. And I have patients who are undocumented. But I know the city is doing a lot. HP is very expensive. But usually they give you some way to overcome this and get insulin from hospital to hospital. The first thing you should do if you are not a citizen, you are not a resident, I used to take them to the financial office. They show at least one, one piece of ID. If they work, what kind of work they do, how much they gain weekly, bi-weekly months. And at this stage, they give them a card from this hospital, but who participates in the program of UH usually gives them affordable way to get coverage from this HBV. So far, I know that it is not easy because they ask them for papers. Usually, these people don't have papers. I have patients who don't even, fortunately, they bring. They bring up this ID, even if you are undocumented. Even now is easier because you can do your learning permit. You you can do your driver license without getting. So 
being a resident or a city. This makes them feel more comfortable. Thank you, Mr. Dauda and Dr. Kurumswamami. The next part is regarding strategies to overcome hepatitis B screening barriers in the African immigrant people. In order for you to come up with a solution, you have to be able to understand the problem and what the underlying issues are. For instance, what are some of those barriers? Limited hepatitis B viral knowledge, the communal and social stigmas that are associated with if the person is found out to have hepatitis infection, fear of test results being disclosed, meaning that people will find out in the community, healthcare seeking only if symptomatic. A lot of these individuals, when they're told that they have hepatitis B infection, if they immigrate into the country, may not necessarily sought out any healthcare issues or healthcare coverage. However, when they become symptomatic is the only time when they show up. Some of the language barriers that we've discussed, time constraints associated with getting the treatments, managements, et cetera, and financial barriers. So some of the factors or various strategies that have been proposed is develop an educational tool that could come in various forms. Again, it could be in written language, brochures, et cetera. But at the same time, the most effective way is oral communication and having individuals from the community be able to disseminate that information. We assure privacy of test results. Again, confidentiality is important in making sure that their information will not be um, publicized. Use preferred language. And again, over-communicate, that may not necessarily include written language, but orally driven ways of engagement. Involve community leaders, members of the community, in the form of Mr. Dauda and what he has brought to the African population in New York City, as well as individuals who are in, in high school, for instance, or in college, who will become future leaders of this community. And then create a care roadmap being able to look at all of your resources that the community may have, and then being able to bring the stakeholders that includes the academic institutions, the community organizations, as well as potential elected officials to ensure that we're able to provide resources and be able to optimize some of those interventions in the most meaningful way. The take-home message from today's discussion, number one, is that African immigrant people are disproportionately affected by chronic hepatitis B. Two, barriers to hepatitis B viral care include awareness and misconceptions, social stigma, language barriers, and insurance navigation issues. And some of the solutions that we can overcome some of these barriers include increasing awareness, providing education of healthcare professionals and patients, use of culturally and linguistically appropriate educational materials, and assistance with acquiring and navigating health insurance. I'd like to thank Dr. Mohammed, Dr. Perumal Swamy, and Mr. Dauda for that excellent discussion, and thank you to our listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the slide set for this podcast and the full program on HBB care in key communities, minimizing barriers and optimizing care on the Clinical Care Options website, click on the links in the show notes for this episode. Other key communities addressed in this program include Asian American people, people of childbearing potential and their infants, and older adults. And please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you. Thank you.